Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 44. Today, we'll be continuing our month-long look at film noir, and we have a good one for you. Tell them. The Maltese Falcon, oh, yeah. directed by John Huston mm -hmm. and starring Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor. Legendary film. So, I literally grew up in a house with the poster for this movie hanging on the wall. And all my life, I've wondered what it's about and if it's good. Well, now you find out. I'm so jazzed. I love John Huston's work, and I love Bogey, so... You are in for a treat. And we have to make this one count because... I won't be here next week. Oh, right. It is officially guest host week next week with Nikki sitting in. You have uh, prior commitments, is that right? Totally school-related, totally class-related, totally going to eat up all my time. So thanks to Mom for filling in next week. Definitely everyone tune in and cheer her on. And remember, we do have an all-request month coming up in July, so if you have a last-minute request you want to send our way, definitely do that. We love doing the films you want to hear us cover. Okay. Shall we do business and then move along? Totally. Take it away. So, business number one, thanks for being here. Yep. Thanks for listening. Watching movies and talking about them for you is a lot of fun, and it's cool you're enjoying it. So true. And you know what? We love hearing from you, too. So if you ever have ideas or suggestions for us, maybe for a film we should do, or maybe an aspect of a film you would like us to look at or consider, let us know. Also, if you'd like to read a cold open for the podcast, maybe talking about a nostalgic or formative experience you had watching movies, get in touch and let's make that happen right away. Like we say, you don't have to have come from a small town in the Ottawa Valley. But bonus points if you did. If you could, right now, please take a moment to hit like, subscribe, and share. Especially share. The sharing is the big one. When you share, more people listen to our show. It's a fact. Or if you were on one of those audio-only platforms that you hear so much about, see about dropping us some stars. Hey, maybe even a quick review. You'd be surprised how much that sort of thing really helps. While you're at all that, why not check us out on the socials? I don't know if you knew this, but we are on the Facebook. I love old movies, the podcast. You're probably wondering if we are on the Instagram. <laughs> we are. At I love old movies, the podcast. El Twitter. Oh yeah, we got you covered. At ILOM podcast. And the good old fashioned email. You don't even need a stamp. I love old movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. And of course... As always, you should do what the cool kids do, and that is Pet the Rock. By that, we mean head on over to PetRockRadio.ca to listen to amazing local web-based radio programming with fantastic music and previous episodes of our show broadcast three times a week. Monday, Saturday, and Sunday. That is pretty damn cool. We'll link that for you in the description. So... Are you all set to travel back to San Francisco and enter the hard-boiled world of private eyes and dangerous dames? My retainer is already paid. Hit the music. The writer and director of The Maltese Falcon was John Huston. To hear us talk about this legendary auteur, go back and check out episode 21, the Unforgiven. Go ahead, we'll wait. Making his long-delayed and very much awaited film debut in The Maltese Falcon was the then 61-year-old Sidney Greenstreet. 
Born in England, Greenstreet turned to acting after failed ventures as a tea grower and a brewer. He debuted on stage in 1905 and soon was touring England and the United States in a variety of productions, musical comedies, dramas, Shakespeare. Greenstreet could, and did, do it all. He worked steadily on stage well into the 1930s. And so popular and prominent was he as an actor, the offers to be in films on both sides of the Atlantic were plentiful. Greenstreet steadfastly refused, though, choosing the stage firmly over the screen until 1941, when he signed with Warner Brothers. Things took off quickly then, as Greenstreet was promptly cast in The Maltese Falcon, his first film, and for that he earned an Oscar nomination. This set off a torrid run of film appearances for Greenstreet, and he would star, co-star, or support in a total of 22 films over the next eight years, before ending his acting career in 1949. But along the way, the films he made and the actors he worked with? Absolutely legendary. He made They Died With Their Boots On with Errol Flynn as a second film, and his fourth film was Casablanca. It's kind of hard to go up from there. Similar to his career on stage, Greenstreet proved to be a very versatile performer. Believable in film noirs such as The Mask of Demetrios, or in comedies such as A Christmas in Connecticut, or musicals like Hollywood Canteen and dramas such as Ruthless, and the actors he worked with? Bogart, Laurie, Stewart, Gable, Crawford, Stanwyck, Henried, Raines, Tracy, multiple times for some of them, especially Peter Laurie. And he worked with some directors several times as well, like John Huston and Michael Curtis. Failing health and age took him off screen and into radio briefly at the end of his career, as he portrayed Detective Nero Wolfe. But by 1951, his performing career was over. A longtime respected stage performer and a film actor with a relatively brief but incredibly impactful and memorable career, Sidney Greenstreet died in 1954 at the age of 74. Born in Illinois, Mary Astor grew up with her parents pushing her to compete in child beauty contests. At the age of 14, she finally caught the eye of Hollywood executives. Her first role in a film was a bit part in The Scarecrow in 1920. Over the next few years, Astor continued to take bit roles in various productions, and it wasn't until 1924 that she made a notable film. She was cast in Bo Brummel in 1924, which quickly put her in the spotlight, but she also gained a well-known name from her affair with the star of the film, John Barrymore. She continued appearing in hit films over the next few years and even made the successful transition to talkies. Films like Red Dust, 1932, Man of Iron, 1935, and Prisoner of Zenda, 1937, let Astor keep her spot at the top of Hollywood. However, she almost hit the breaking point for her career in 1936 when a scandal came to light about her affair with playwright George S. Kaufman. She was able to get back on track with her filmmaking quickly and had great success with The Great Lie in 1941, which won her an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, before appearing in The Maltese Falcon later that year. After that, Astor's career saw a gradual decline, appearing in less with smaller-sized roles, until she was only in five films in the 1950s, and her last production was Hush, Hush, Sweet Caroline in 1964. She ended her career with a total of 156 acting credits and made 123 films. Astor died in 1987 at the age of 81. 
I feel there's so much to say about The Maltese Falcon, a movie that resides in a very special intersection of fan acclaim, critical appreciation, and objective quality and innovation. But with words failing me, I turn to the wisdom and brilliance of Roger Ebert. I'm just going to read directly from Ebert's own review of this film. Among the movies we not only love, but treasure, The Maltese Falcon stands as a great divide. Consider what was true after its release in 1941, and what was not true before. Number one. The movie defined Humphrey Bogart's performances for the rest of his life. His hard-boiled Sam Spade rescued him from a decade of middling roles in B-gangster movies and positioned him for Casablanca, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The African Queen, and his other classics. Two. It was the first film directed by John Huston, who for more than 40 years would be a prolific maker of movies that were muscular, stylish, and daring. Number three. It contained the first screen appearance of Sidney Greenstreet, who went on in Casablanca and many other films to become one of the most striking character actors in movie history. Number four. It was the first pairing of Greenstreet and Peter Lorre, and so well did they work together that they made nine other movies, including Casablanca in 1942 and The Mask of Demetrios in 1944, in which they were not supporting actors, but actually the stars. Number five. And some film histories consider The Maltese Falcon the first film noir. It puts down the foundations for that Native American genre of mean streets, knife-edged heroes, and dark shadows, and tough dames. Having been a writer with some successes under his belt, John Huston convinced Warner Brothers to let him direct a remake of the twice-filmed novel The Maltese Falcon. Huston grasped the novel in ways the previous filmmakers had not, and felt that the focus should not so much be on the quest and the MacGuffin, but on the people in this tale. And most importantly, Sam Spade had to be uncompromisingly tough and hard. Studios wanted heroic heroes and happy endings in those days and Houston had no intention of providing either. Seems like a gutsy choice for the era. Oh, absolutely. And as always, just remember, it could have been George Raft instead of Humphrey Bogart. Ugh, that would have stunk. He stinks. He totally stinks. How did he make so many movies? Mob connections. Oh, yeah, right. What was Raft's problem this particular time? Oh, well, he didn't do remakes. What an idiot. So, Houston was meticulous in his preparation for this film, and extensively used the still new technique of storyboarding for the entire film, planning every moment, shot for shot. And the results are totally there. This is a really cool looking film, with a visual flair that sets it apart from others of its time. They really wanted to stress the angles and the shadows, as a way to guide the viewer's eye to aspects that they wanted emphasized. So smart. How was the film received? Did people get it? Oh, and how. The Variety magazine review called it, Unfolding a most intriguing and entertaining murder mystery, the picture displays outstanding excellence in writing, direction, acting, and editing, combining in overall as a prize package of entertainment for widest audience appeal. Okay, yeah. They got it. Arguably the first true film noir, and if not, certainly a definitive example of the genre, and a film that transformed Bogart while introducing the talents of John Huston and Sidney Greenstreet, the universal acclaim that this film enjoys is certainly well received. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? 
Okay, so we have an 8.0 on IMDb. Mm-hmm. The audience score is 91%, and the tomato meter is 100%. Right. The film was nominated for three Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and Best Screenplay. And for this one, you will have to head over to your local secondhand DVD shop. San Francisco private eyes Sam Spade and Miles Archer are hired by Ruth Wonderly to find her sister, who is under the nefarious influences of a man named Floyd Thursby. But as Archer tails Thursby, he is murdered. And later, Thursby himself is found murdered. And the working theory is that Thursby killed Archer and Spade killed Thursby. That's quite a start. And Spade, for his part, doesn't seem too broken up about losing his partner. Not at all. That might be because Sam was sleeping with Miles' wife. Ah, yeah. And she even thinks he might have killed her husband. There's a lot of murder and a lot of motive and a lot of blame flying around. Spade meets with Wonderly again, but she comes clean and identifies herself as Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Thursby was actually her partner, but had done her wrong. And she says he probably killed Archer, but the murders need to be investigated properly. She's so sus. Incredibly sus. Spade plays along and is soon visited by Joel Cairo, who wants Spade to help locate the statue of a bird for its rightful owner. He wants to search Spade's office and gets beaten up for it, but then hires the detective with cash. Before pulling a gun on him again and searching the office. Funny scene. Spade tells Bridget about Cairo, and it's clear that she knows him. And also, he was being tailed by a young thug named Wilmer. But she assumes he is working for a character known as the Fat Man, Casper Gutman. Spade sends a message to Gutman through the young hood, setting up a meeting. Gutman mentioned the statue, a black falcon, but is very sketchy and evasive about the whole thing. More sus. So much sus. All the sus. It actually takes two meetings between the men before Gutman tells the entire tale of the bird and offers Spade a huge sum of money for its acquisition. Spade is drugged, and when he falls unconscious, we see that Gutman and Cairo are working together. A ship named the La Paloma has arrived from Hong Kong, but has been set aflame in dock, and the captain of the La Paloma arrives at Spade's office carrying a large, heavy bundle wrapped in newspaper. He is riddled with bullets and dies, but inside the package is the Maltese Falcon. Spade checks the Falcon and mails the claim tag to himself before going to find Bridget. When he does find her, Cairo, Gutman, and Wilmer are there. Gutman offers 10000 for the statue, less than the fifty he had offered earlier. But Spade wants a fall guy included in the deal, so the murders of Archer, Thursby, and Captain Jacoby can be accounted for. He suggests Wilmer. And this leads to an uncomfortable negotiation. Especially for Wilmer. But Gutman agrees, and the deal is made, and Wilmer is knocked out to be given to the cops. Sam's secretary, Effie, brings the falcon in the morning, but upon inspection, it is found to be one of the fakes known to exist. Gutman and Cairo are distraught, but agree to go to Istanbul to continue their search. Wilmer escapes in the confusion, but Spade calls the police and alerts them to grab Gutman and Cairo. Bridget confesses that she killed Archer as a plan to implicate Thursby, and Spade decides to give her up to the police as well, 
saying he hopes they don't hang her by her pretty neck. The end. Holy wow. That film. Yeah. Man. Want to just sit here and let it sink in? No, I want to prone on this baby. Let's go. Okay, so as always, we don't actually rate films here on the show. We don't give stars, we don't give thumbs, we just tell you some things we liked. Some things we didn't. And then we recommend whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros. Number one, Sam Spade is one of the coolest and most complicated screen heroes of all time. A constant presence in the film, he's not only in almost every scene, he's in almost every shot. This is Humphrey Bogart's movie. And his portrayal of Spade is rightfully legendary. A lasonic, driven, ambitious, cynical character with constantly shifting moral compasses, Spade drifts through the action with a disconnected air, sometimes letting things happen around him, and only directing things when absolutely necessary. In a film where everyone is playing everyone else, Spade is the ultimate chess master, luring everyone into his game from the moment we meet him, right up until the very end. Number two, the cast of characters. An incredible rogues gallery of unbelievably sketchy and suspicious characters with questionable motivations and alignments. They populate the world of the Maltese Falcon. Greenstreet and Laurie, in their first of several screen co-appearances, both work hard to almost steal every scene that they are in. The hard-nosed cops, filling the frame every time they are on screen with their nondescript faces and gruff voices. Effie, the incredibly competent secretary who, honestly... I would have watched a spin-off movie with her. So much goes right in this movie. But as with all tales, it is the people that the story happens to that draws us in and keeps us there. And the people involved? They're amazing. Number three, the cinematography. The careful shot choices, the subtle camera movements, the low angles that make everyone seem like they're looming in every scene. John Huston and Arthur Edison knew what they were up to with this film. The camera eye is almost another character in the movie. We're giving an amazing set of looks into this world, and this is the sort of film that is much a joy to look at as it is to watch, if that makes sense. Number four, the dialogue. The back and forths in this film absolutely pop. When Spade gets quipping, it's unbelievable. And every line that Cairo and Gutman deliver are really something else. The talking in this film is absolutely top-notch, and it helps lift this movie to an epic level. Houston did a magnificent job of adapting the source material into a screenplay that served the actors and the story. Honestly, some of the lines, they're great, quotable, memorable, and they roll off the tongue and into our ears perfectly. My cons. Number one, as good as almost every performance in the Maltese Falcon is, Mary Astor always kind of leaves me a bit cold in this film. She's so actory that some of her more emotive lines come across as fake and unbelievable. And not in the way that her character is not credible, but in the way that she is an actor playing a role in an unbelievable manner. Her delivery is constantly too breathy, her eyes too dirty, and her charms too inconsistent with what an audience might expect from a femme fatale. Make no mistake, Bridget O'Shaughnessy is a fantastic character, but a more interesting actress might have been a better choice. Number two, further to that, the romance parts in this film are a little underserved. I have no problem believing that Sam was playing Bridget as much as she was playing him. So when they have the discussion at the end of the movie about loving each other, 
it just doesn't make sense. They don't love each other. There's no way that they do. And there's no way to believe that they are in this for each other. They're not. Clearly. So the love chat? It doesn't fit. I'm not sure either character presents themselves at any time as if even being capable of love. Sam is far too cynical and jaded and detached and Bridget too scheming and selfish and dishonest. You know what? I'm glad he sent her to jail. I'm not going to nitpick this film, looking for little things that I could say might have or should have been better. You've got a first-time director who knocked it out of the park. You have a first-time screen actor who translated 40 years of stage work into an unforgettable Oscar-nominated performance. And you have a guy known as mostly a B-movie gangster type transforming into the biggest star in Hollywood right before our eyes. Oh, and we get a genre-defining film to boot. The Maltese Falcon is one of those films that I can safely say goes beyond a watch recommendation. And this lands squarely in the required viewing category. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One, the dialogue. It was awesome. It stayed pretty fast-paced and snappy throughout the whole film. It really kept me engaged and captivated because I didn't want to miss anything. Like, there would be a huge info dump or a witty response to something. But there were still a lot of blink-and-you-miss-it sort of moments. And everyone just had some absolutely killer lines. I still can't get over Humphrey Bogart's one line to Peter Lorre. When you get slapped, you'll take it and like it. <laughs> Amazing. Two. Bridget. She was a pretty interesting character. She was just so manipulative and disingenuous. Sam probably said it best when he said she hadn't been honest for a full half hour since he's met her. Normally it would be easier to tell when a character like that is lying, but she's so fake you just can't tell. At the end, is she sad because she did end up loving Sam after all? Or is she just miffed because she's going to go to prison? We'll never know. Now, I unfortunately do not have another pro to share right now. Obviously, this was a wonderful film, so that was not the reason. But I could not think of another point to talk about. I'm going to get my cons done and over with first, and then I'll elaborate on this some more. So my cons. One. The intro. It basically just had this little blurb of text on the screen that gave a bit of backstory to the Maltese Falcon itself. At first I thought it was nice to be given that information, but then later in the film the exact same story is explained by Gutman. The film didn't need that explanation twice. If Gutman was going to give the backstory through actual dialogue, then the intro bit was just pointless. I get that the explanation happened a lot later in the film, but all of the twists and turns kept the movie so exciting that no one would have minded waiting for that bit of info until later. It just felt kind of repetitive and was unnecessary. 2. The Falcon So, first of all, I love the build-up to the reveal. People are dying, crazy deals and threats are made, Sam looks in the package, but we don't get to see it. It was great. 
And all that kept me on the edge of my seat, just waiting to know if we actually get to see it, is it actually there? And then we do. It was cool, detailed, and pretty. I was just expecting something flashier. Like, the story about it said there were jewels on the falcon, but I didn't see any. It honestly looked almost kind of plain and like any other statue, not a priceless item people would kill for. But maybe that was the point. To make it fly under the radar better? I'm not sure. It just felt a little weird. Now, just like with my pros, I don't actually have a third con. I was just incapable of coming up with another. Okay, so... This was a very difficult movie for me to talk about. Movies like this, I just find so hard to analyze and actually articulate my feelings about. It was a great movie. A fantastic movie. I had never seen it before, and honestly, I was not expecting it to be as good as it was. I loved it so much more than Double Indemnity. But that was kind of the issue. I liked it too much. I loved the film as one thing, as a whole. I couldn't just pick out specific little aspects that stood out to me or that I liked more. Why can't we just accept and appreciate it as a masterpiece and call it a day? Actually, you know what? That's exactly what I'm going to do. So, there you go. In case you couldn't tell, I'm giving this one an overwhelming watch recommendation. All right. Well done. And with that, we come to the end of another episode. How did you like it? We had a lot of fun watching this movie. I'm still kind of in the wow stage over it. Well, be sure to come back next week as we'll be having Nikki here, guest hosting, as we look at another great film noir. Okay, then. Sounds good. But until then, be sure to watch more movies. And let everyone know about us. We're not a secret. You don't have to keep us all to yourselves. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like the stuff that dreams are made of as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from freefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.